Welcome back to Get Paid for Your Pad, episode 589. This is second podcast in our series on revenue management. Uh, I have a good friend and awesome guest on the show today, Mr. John DeRoulet. He's the head of revenue management at Wheelhouse, which, as we all know, is one of the main price pricing tools uh, widely used by, uh, by Airbnb hosts and short-term rental hosts across the world. So, John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Jasper. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm really enjoying those monthly webinars that you do with the revenue management panel. I've, uh, I've watched a couple of them. Uh, what is that? Is that a, that's a one, once a month thing, right? Yeah, we do it like once a month to sometimes every six weeks, depending on how how full my calendar is and how full everyone else's is. Got it. Okay, well, but uh, yeah, if anybody wants to learn more about revenue management, uh, highly recommend john's uh panels how, how do how can people sign, sign up for that um so if you go and either signed up following wheelhouse or just following us on linkedin we always put out a registration um we also send out all the recordings and then if you go to the wheelhouse youtube all of the previous recordings are there uh and wow. they're pretty useful because really the reason we were doing it is i have a lot of friends who uh whenever we're at conferences we talk about just what's going on in our markets and it's a great learning opportunity and we wanted to make sure you know, everyone in the space kind of had an opportunity to just hear what other people are doing and thinking, and then be able to reflect on what they might might apply in their own portfolio. Yep, gotcha. And you also have um, the Ref Bytes. It's called right the YouTube. Yeah, I do that with Doug Truitt. Um, we did it a lot after COVID. Uh, we just started it up again. That one's a little lighter. We're just talking about news and our own thoughts and opportunity. Really, for me to hang out with Doug, he's a bright guy, and I, I enjoy sitting <laughs> chatting. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we we actually had Doug on uh, on the podcast on the last episode uh, last week, so we all we know all about uh, Mr. Doug. So, um, all right, well, let's dive into it. So today, I want to talk about minimum night stays. It's a it's a specific but but even specific topic, but even within this specific topic, there's lots to talk about, right? Um, you know, last uh, episode with Doug, we talked about revenue management, like what it all is, um, and uh, we touched a little bit on the minimum night stay uh, topic, but not uh, we didn't go too deep. So today, I really want to talk about you know why what what how should we set our minimum night stay setting, right? And then also. There, what kind of adjustments should we then make? Because, uh, you know, I just looked in wheelhouse. There's like six different, um, you know, adjustments that we can make. We can make adjustments for like gap, gaps in our calendar. We can make future and last minute adjustments. And there's a lot of other stuff to dive into. So I want to pick your brain today on uh, on that topic. So for, let's start off with um, why should we have a minimum night stay in the first place? Like, should we just, you know, make every night like one night bookings available like why, why should we even have a two free four night minimum yeah it's a good question and really the first is answer is the most simple and not actually even rm related it's your operational concerns uh or your regulatory concerns right obviously if you have something that prevents you from being able to operate the listing at a lower night stay then you have to be able to control that um outside of that though uh 
the big thing, the big idea behind a minimum night stay is you're trying to maximize the number of nights booked and thus maximize the revenue. We know that um, some days are more valuable than others. And depending on how popular a day is, you can kind of fish for the people that are staying a little longer. But you, if you split a date range that's really valuable, it's actually very hard to book all of them. Um, so putting in a minimum night stay allows you to uh, to basically try and maximize that, that revenue over the date range, to not split it up. Yeah. Now, there's risks that come along with that too, right? Because every time you put a restriction in, you're reducing the amount of people who are who are actually able to see and buy your listing. So you're doing a little bit of guessing there. You're you're kind of playing the game like, hey, you know, if a thousand people are coming for this day, five hundred of them might be looking for two nights, but two hundred might be looking for three nights, and only one hundred are looking for one, and maybe only ten are looking for one, you know, the Friday or the Saturday check-in. So if you just need to get it booked you might use the lower one. It's like, I don't really care if I split it. I just want it booked. But if you have a property that's really valuable, you really want to fill all the nights. You want to get the longest stay uh, because your chances of booking the any, what I would call an orphan night, are, are greatly reduced. Right. Exactly. So let me give a really good example of this uh, just to make this really clear, right? So I'm going on a skiing holiday in January and where we, we go in Austria and Europe, I don't know if it's, it works the same here in the US, but essentially like when in Europe, when you go on a skiing trip, oftentimes like you can only book the the hotel like Saturday to Saturday. So everybody arrives on the Saturday and everybody leaves on the Saturday because everybody stays for a week or two weeks, right? So they these hotels, they typically have a seven day minimum and they even restrict it to the point where you can only book on Saturday, Right. Um, so that's a very restrictive, but because everybody is 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 you know w- wants to go for a week, it it makes a lot of sense. Because if one, let's say like one person books like a, a Wednesday, now no one's going to book the Saturday to the Wednesday or the or the Thursday to the Saturday, right? So that's kind of an extreme example, I guess, where you know you make it extremely restrictive, and that's probably the optimal way to do it. In that case, correct? Yeah, it definitely can be. Um, there's a lot of market areas where um, some of the restrictions themselves are actually almost like legacy from the operations of a previous time where you know they do Saturday to Saturday because they've always kind of done it. It does stabilize the revenue really well. But maybe the market's actually not. Uh, they're, they're just doing it because that's what other people in the market does. And sometimes that's fine, right? But... Market conditions change. We've seen a lot of people this year come off of these these restrictions that maybe they don't remember exactly what the revenue benefit was, or they don't know if it's still beneficial. I think the first question to ask when you're thinking about inputting a restriction is, is this day going to sell out? Is it a high demand date? Is it, uh, to use a hotel term, is this going to be a compression date, right? If you believe that it's going to be a compression date, then a restriction might make sense. Um, if you don't think it's going to be a compression date, then you probably want to question the restriction. Um, and that also occurs in those areas where you see like lots of Saturday to Saturday, everyone's doing it. Um, the very early people who started pulling off that when they, they thought the market was actually softer than 
than it had been previously, they got a lot of success because what it turned out that a lot of customers didn't know that it was like Saturday to Saturday or were looking for shorter stays and now they became the only people available. So they kind of like, mm-hmm. even though demand in aggregate was lower, they it looked like you know, there was very compressed dates because there's very few properties available for the things people were searching for. And those people ended up getting booked. They may have even been able to charge a premium. And that's the other balance you have to think about with restrictions. A restriction is in a way a rate premium. You're, you know, you're almost taxing people to stay the day they want to stay, right? It's like, okay, well, I want to really just be there on Saturday, but I'll stay Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Um, you have to be really careful about how you layer in a rate premium when you have a restriction. I've seen a lot of people post-COVID who were like, okay, we're stacking up the rate 30% 90 days out. I'm also putting in a five-night minimum. It's like, okay, you only need one of those to be wrong to be overpriced. Now, if you're doing it on both of them, you're potentially like forcing that booking window in really short. Mm-hmm. So I think people should absolutely use restrictions. But you always have to ask the question, do I think this data is going to sell out? And am I also pricing too high with the restriction? Okay, so let's uh, let's just take a, an example, right? Let's take secondary U.S. city. Uh, let's say we have one bedroom um, and we are deciding what should our minimum stay be. Let's say this is a seasonal market. You know, summer is very popular. Um rest of the year is kind of a bit slower. How will we go about the f- deciding, like, aside from operational concerns, right? Let's just say we have a, you know, kick-ass cleaning team. We can do one-nighters. We can do last minutes. We can do anything we want. Um, how, from a profit-maximizing, revenue-maximizing point of view, like, how, how do we go about What kind of data do we want to look at to make this decision? Sure. So, I'm going to put out a lot of kind of different factors that I think you should consider. I wish I could bring it down to like a simple three and I'll see if I can to get you most of the way. But um, there's a few things that you need to consider when you're thinking about this. The first is just the seasonality of the market. That one's simple, right? Like whatever your risk, if you have different restrictions and dynamic restrictions, they're probably going to align with market seasonality. Like if you have a high season in July and a low season in January, you usually don't have the seven night minimum length of stay in January and the two night length of stay in, in July, right? There's situations where that might occur. (laughs) But um, generally if you're just selling to people who are like on an OTA or doing transient business, your restrictions are going to align with your seasonality. So that's the first part. Just identify what your high season is, right? And then just to um, be clear, so in our high season, we, wanna, we want uh, the length of stay to be more restrictive. That's where you'd consider more restrictive length of stays. Right. right? Got it. Um, then what you probably want to know, these ones are related, is, is like how big the property is. Uh, because that's going to determine, it's probably going to be the biggest thing that determines the booking window. Right? You want to understand like when are people generally booking? Um, for like you mentioned in that example, uh, like a one bedroom in a city, that booking window might be very short. You might be like 30 days is peak booking window or 21 days even. But if you have a five bedroom in that same city, it might be 60 days or or 75, right? That's going to change how you think about your restriction. And what it changes is not what restriction you set. It's when you decide to come off that restriction. You know, you kind of want to 
have like a release valve. You're like, okay, I'm going to try this restriction, but there's a point where I'm just going to let it book for, you know, if I can, because I don't, I don't really know, you know, I don't want to take too much risk. Right. So that booking window is like your release valve. Um, you can look at that data. I would look at it by month, not on an annual basis. Cause really that's the important part of like, identify your high season, identify the booking window for that high season in general. Right. You can choose the median and maybe do a little inside the median is like a risk tolerance that I see a lot of people do. It's like for one bedroom, you kind of choose 30 days as you know, your thing, you might drop off at like 21 or 14. Right. Um, so those are two factors there. You now know where you want to put a restriction, when you want that restriction to drop off. The next part's deciding your actual restrictions. This one, I would just kind of like, there's a few factors that go into that. Um, the first one is, this one won't be relevant to everyone, is how big your portfolio is. Uh, I know it sounds a little silly because each unit is individual, but the more units you have, um, the less risk you can take, right? So we generally, when I was, so I worked at a company called Stay Alfred for a long time where we grew. When I started, we had like 120 properties. And by the time the company was over, we had about 3,000. And uh, that growth in individual markets really changed how we did restrictions. When we started out, we were super restrictive. As we got larger and larger, we became less and less restrictive and eventually switched to the point where we would start very unrestricted and actually add restrictions in later. Um, because the risk of being wrong in your restriction and not having any bookings was so much higher than actually like underselling and then making up a little bit on, the, on other units. So that scale is really important. You kind of have to choose that yourself. But I think there's a good little story that makes sense. It's like if, you, if you're selling one car, like you have a nice car, you're trying to sell it. All you got to do is find the guy who's going to pay your price. If you have 100 cars on the lot, you got to sell 100 cars. So you're going to sell them at a bunch of different prices, right? Same is kind of true with restrictions. Um, if you have one, you can hold out. You can take more risk. If you have a bunch, you, you need to get data points. You need to, put, you need to get some off the lot. Um, before I just give you a big block of talking, do you want to <laughs> ask me anything about that or no. interject? <laughs> no, that, that makes sense. Um, you know, so we're kind of talking about a, a few different things, like what what do we set as our restriction, when do we set it, and when do we release it? Um, and you were saying, you were saying, like, let's say most of your booking happens in the thirty day window, then you would typically release the restriction around like twenty days or so. Um, so that's that makes a little sense. Let's talk a little bit more about how we decide you you mentioned the seasonality i think that may definitely makes sense um but how do we decide whether we should do like a two night minimum or like a three night minimum or like a four night minimum do we look at length of stay data for that you can the best data that's unavailable to us would be search data right like not direct search data, but like OTA search data to just see like how many, you know, how many people are actually looking, you know, what percent of the market's actually looking for seven nights, what percent of the market's looking for two, three, whatever. Unfortunately, that data is really not available to anyone in the market. Like anyone, nobody has it right now, except for the OTAs, they won't release it. Bummer for us, whenever that happens, we're all going to be really much better revenue managers. Um, since you don't have that data, there's a few things you can look at. One, you can just kind of look at what other people are doing. 
you know, if you're in a market where most people are seven to seven, you're probably pretty safe doing that. You also could consider it an advantage to do something different, you know, maybe to put your price a little higher than everyone else, but offer a lower length of stay, those kind of things. Um, you can also, this is a, something I think if you have enough inventory is, is worth doing. Um, you can be a little less restrictive and kind of improve that over time, like fine tune it up. Um, whether that's year over year or just if you have enough inventory to do it. Uh, because if you get data points, you can make better decisions. If you don't have any data points and you have to guess, you really need to know when your cutoff valve is because at the end of the day, you're guessing on the demand curve. Um, generally speaking, what you probably just want to look at is how other people are doing it, right? If you just go into the high season now, you know, check it a few times, whether using a data source or just go to the OTAs and just, you know, type in some dates in the middle of your high season at different length of stays and just look at like how many results are popping up. Mm -hmm. You'll get an idea of like, okay, are most people doing three nights? Are most people doing four? Are most people doing seven? You know, um, that's one good way is just kind of get an idea of like the baseline in the market. Um, <clears throat> you may also want to uh, think about like the day of the week. So this is much more relevant, I think, for an urban market where. Yeah, well, let me let me put it this way. If you look at market occupancies by day, if you see significant differences by day of the week, that tells you something about minimum length of stay. You know, if the market's at 80% occupancy on a weekend and 30% on a weekday, then you you probably need to differentiate that and you also probably want lower minimum length of stays, right? It means people are coming for the coming for the weekend, chances are you can't push beyond 3 nights, right? Cuz that's like one extra night than what people actually want. So that's like that kind of internal thing. You know, one extra night than what people want is maybe like what you can do. So heuristically in an urban market, you're probably one night weekday, two night weekend, three night weekend outside of, you know, when you're pushing. Once you get to like three, four, five bedroom, you might be able to add a night to that on the weekends and, and the weekdays. I don't think like it's hard to book those on weekdays. If the market allows, like, does a lot of seven nights, or there's not a lot of your very large inventory, which happens, you can probably push to seven. Um, in a traditional vacation rental market, you kind of want to see what other people are doing. You can mine your own reservation data. Like, are you getting a lot of seven night reservations? Right. Uh, that's a good one. Like, if you've had less restrictive restrictions, you're like, you know, two night, three nights, weekday, weekend. Go look at your data and see what percentage of people are actually booking for seven nights. You know, if it's only 10%, then you probably don't want to go much higher. But if you get like 50% seven night bookings, you you may want to maybe restrict it and make people try to book those, especially earlier out, right? Um, because what you don't want is people to book your best properties for the three nights when otherwise you probably could have sold, you know, had a 50% chance of selling that for seven nights. Do you do you think that do you see that larger homes? typically have a longer length of stay? Yes. Interesting. Is that true for all markets or is that very market dependent as well? Or is it kind of a general line of thumb? I think it's a, pretty true across the board. Got it. Um, okay. And I think it's true for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that 
it's not that smaller properties don't get longer stays. It's I think larger properties don't get as many short stays. Like it's a hassle to like, I know there's people like this. I'm not, I wouldn't want to coordinate 15 people to show up for, for a day somewhere or two days. You know, it's like, that's insane, especially in the last minute, right? Like five days before, like that means you're just like, you're basically looking for someone who's like house burned down and has a huge family. You know, think about the consumer profile of like what you're selling to when you actually set that rule up. It's like, oh, okay. You know, within three days, I'll open it up for a one night stay in my 14 bedroom house. It's like, who are you selling to, man? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I guess, I guess the book and the booking window typically is is different, right? So that release valve, as you described, like should happen at a very different time as well. Exactly, and that's why knowing the booking window is really important because on a in an urban apartment in downtown that release valve might be within the week you know like you know most people on a hotel site are booking those within a week you're really not giving up much by missing out on the bookings that came in for that you know one night earlier you have a lot more to gain but if you have like a five bedroom or a six bedroom or a 10 bedroom house on the beach those people might be booking that six months in advance and so your release might be at like 90 days and even then, you have a greatly reduced amount of people booking, right? Sure. Um, if you wait till like, if you had the same rule set where it's like within seven days, I'm going to drop that from a five night to a three night, like the difference in the amount of people looking is significant between those two properties. And you, sh- you should be able to infer it from the booking window. Got it. Um, okay. So we talked about the sort of the default uh, minimized stay. We talked about how we set it up future versus last minute and seasonality weekday versus weekend. Now let's talk about orphan nights. Now this is a, this is something that I noticed in our, in our student groups that not everybody's aware of this, but you can, if you have like, let's say you have like a, a free night minimum stay, right? That means we can get gaps in our calendar of two nights and one night gaps that can't be booked. Now, the major pricing tools have functionality where you could say, hey, I want to have a free night minimum, but if there's a two-night gap or a one-night gap, then I want to allow people to book those gaps, right? So let's touch on that for a second. Um, Obviously, it's pretty... I guess the only decision that we have to really make there is like, do we allow people only... Do we only allow people to book the full gap or do we allow people to book part of the gap? Yeah, I. So we're assuming you can do it. I I don't think it matters as much. Uh, I mean, I think it's always going to be more beneficial for you to probably let people book anything in the gap, but the full gap is good too. Um, at that point, I think it, it's actually a pricing decision. It's like how are you going to price in the gap, right? Mm. Um, if you're going to go for the full gap, you should drop the rate in the gap, right? Because you really want it to be booked and you're looking for a very specific fit. If you're going for anything in the gap, then you probably just leave it at rack rate and let it let it ride. Um, I don't know what's really more beneficial. What I would probably do is just allow the, the shorter gap if I could. Um, larger properties, I may not. I mean, because sometimes you just can't go too much lower. 
And at the end of the day, sometimes those nights are not going to be super sellable anyway. So I actually consider that more of like, <clears throat> it's binary. Open up the gaps if you can do it. Decide on a pricing strategy. You know, I do see some people will like drop like to one night, but they'll like double the price. And I understand why you would do that. But, you know, you have to understand that that's probably not going to drive a lot of revenue. But the revenue it drives will be nice, right? True. Um, Orphan nights, I would describe a little differently. Those are a little bit interesting. uh, Because an orphan is like a one-sided gap. Um, It's like you have a checkout, but you don't have the check-in triggering anything. So where I see people use that is, especially in urban environments or really high weekend environments where you have a restriction on a weekend, but somehow someone splits the weekend. They're like, they check in on a Tuesday and then they check out on Saturday or they check out on Friday even, and you have a three night normally. Now what's going to happen is you still have that restriction in place that like three night, but it's really hard to find the one person who's going to stay Friday through Sunday. And so you want that to drop to two. You want to offer you mean up Saturday to Monday, right? Yes. Yeah, Saturday. Uh, I said both Friday to Sunday, Friday through Sunday night, whatever. Um, the idea is that either the Friday, it's a, like a Friday checkout or a Saturday check-in, right? Where you break up, you lose one of the, the key nights. One of the weekend nights. Yeah. Right. And That's if you're restricted, you totally lose it. You probably already lost it because it's hard to book those anyway. Now you're looking for like a one night stay or two night stay. But if you have the tools in place in the system, you can automate dropping those restrictions so that you know you're always keeping the restrictions on open days. But whenever they get broken up, you have a higher chance of booking. it. Right. Um, that becomes gotcha. like a really valuable urban thing yeah, because that's you a, get a lot of one, two nights. That's a really interesting one, right? So let's say that we have a free night because I, I see a lot of people do this. They have a, let's say, a two night minimum on the weekdays and a free night minimum on the weekends. Right, so they're they're really looking to get the mon- the Friday to Monday booking or the first day to Sunday booking, right? Um, and then, you know, but but somebody could book uh, to your point. Somebody could book Wednesday to Saturday, right? And now that that Saturday night is a very valuable night that might be difficult to book because now Saturday to Monday can't be booked because you have that free night minimum on the weekend. So if that's the case, then essentially you would say, okay, if my if my weekend is split, now I'm going to allow the Saturday night to be booked by itself, for example. So I'll allow people to book the Saturday to Sunday as a one night, even though it's a weekend. Yep. Right. That would basically be the rule set. I also encourage people because the, the Friday night split is easier. Like when someone checks out on a Friday and breaks your weekend, it's, it's easier to sell like the Friday night and a Saturday night for two nights. Um, the the uh, selling it just to Saturday night is really hard. Um, and it's also risky, right? That's like the kind of guess people are pretty nervous about. Usually, what I would encourage people to do when they see split things is still have the automations to try to make these available. One of the benefits of these too is even if you don't sell the nights, just the visibility of your portfolio is always going to be better on OTAs. Like it, it contributes to the development of your advertising by having more open availability. Um, but I honestly, I would like check those reservations and call those people right when they book or send them an email and ask, like offer them a deal on the night and ask them if they'll just extend. Right. <laughs> yeah, I was, that was, that was going to be my next question is actually, you know, other than 
allowing the you know the shorter stays if it fills up a gap or if it's right after an existing reservation like what are some other things that we can do to to really dial in that that occupancy because you know if you think about it let's say you have you have 30 days in a month right let's say on average you get like five or six bookings and let's say that between each booking is a one or two night gap now you're you're easily you're easily at that's easily like you know eight maybe even 10 nights of unbooked occupancy right so like to you know to get above like a 60 70 percent occupancy to really get to like you know 80 90 close to 100 really have to manage those those gaps and those days so you mentioned reaching out to the guests is that is that a is that ever what kind of conversion do you do you feel like you get on that strategy um pretty low but i think it's worth doing if you have the resources to do it i think when we did it at stay offered we got maybe like 10 percent um conversion you really have to get them right after they book it because like mm especially people who are flying in. If you're a drive-in market, I bet you you have a lot more flexibility to do this. Um, but if you're a fly-in market, people have a, like a short window to change their flights. It's a little more, re- it's less restrictive now. It used to be really restrictive. You had like 24 hours or you're screwed and they just tell you no. <laughs> so like you kind of want to hit them like right away. Be like, hey, you know, we noticed you booked this. Would you like this extra night? Stay an extra night. You know, especially when they're planning, like they're kind of excited. So you can get people to convert on that. There's another touch point too, which is interesting where like if you get to the very like last minute, you're like a couple days away from that checkout. Um, if it's not booked, you can offer them like a late checkout as like as a fee and just give them the night. <laughs> you know? Yep. Um, I've that actually was really successful where it's like, hey, it's not booked. The chance I don't know what the chances of me booking this for like rack rate. I'm just gonna offer to it for 75 bucks. And they can stay as long as they want. Sometimes they'll stay the night. You let them know, like, hey, do you want to like check out? We'll actually give you the whole night. Uh, people do take that up quite a bit. Interesting. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. You still make a little bit of extra money. And then the guests probably going to appreciate it too, right? Yeah. It's a good deal to them as well. Yep. What uh, about, oh yeah, one, one, actually one question. Like, do you think people, when people go on a trip, like, do you book your flight first or do you book your, your stay first? Uh, I think people almost always book their flight and I actually have been talking to people on those revenue management webinars about like when we think about people having tighter wallets, when we think about the economics changing, the flight is going to, the flight and the gas eat a lot out of people's budgets and they're very much willing to change their plans or where they want to stay or their ideal kind of like stay because of that cost that they incurred earlier. And so you have to be really careful about like the behavior that we saw this year where people were like, I'm just going to hold the rate, like blah, 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 blah. It's like, man, you know, these people are willing to go stay somewhere else if they, if they're going to come here. And even worse, they might actually just go somewhere else. Uh, I think that's something that's really common right now is, you know, consumer sentiment about travel is still high. They want, people want to travel. What's changing is where they go and when they go. So I think so I'm what's, pretty what's, sure people book their travel first. Yeah, I think so too. And so what's changing? Um, just in terms of like the market. Yeah, you're saying you're saying you know the people still want to travel, but where they go and when they go is changing. 
So are people choosing more budget budget locations or are people going in like lower cost times? Yeah, I think I think it comes down to people's wallets. Uh, I brought this up on my conversation with Doug a couple months ago. Um, it's kind of funny because you talk to people and they're like, people still think of millennials as being like really young. <laughs> like that's Gen Z. Millennials are like, you know, the middle age of millennials, like 35, right? So those are, that's the family demographic now. That is by far one of the most squeezed discretionary income brackets in the United States. So if you're like a beach market who markets to families, that cohort that you're marketing to is the ones who are, who have the least amount of discretionary income in the country, right? Um, those people still express that want to travel, but where they might have gone to Destin every year and paid whatever they were going to pay during COVID because they needed to get out and they wanted to go somewhere. They're now saying like, Hey, Destin's a little expensive. Why don't we look at Tampa or why don't we look at, you know, North Carolina or look at this. And so there's a huge benefit to understanding almost like how other people are pricing now. It kind of like a high level is like, do we think these other markets are too expensive? Because if people can go there, they might choose to go there. The other thing too is I'm seeing a lot of people who are having quite a bit of success in the shoulder seasons now because they started pricing really conservatively early. And what that's indicating to me is that people who were like, you know, summer was soft, they were looking at other dates too. They were looking six months into the future and saying, ah, you know, I was going to plan to take this vacation in July, but it looks like it's going to be a good deal in October. Why don't we go? You know? Mm hmm. You really got to think that far ahead now. You can't just think in the 30 days. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what, what? I mean, you you work at Wheelhouse, right? You work with a lot of clients in different markets and stuff. So you probably have a pretty good pulse on what what's a, can you give us an update on, on 2023? Like how good was this year or how bad was it? And, and how's the rest of the year looking? Um, Going to be a little different by market. I think this is a tough year for folks. Um, I think it's a really tough year for folks who don't have a lot of pre-COVID memory um, or experience because uh, the seasonality trends post-COVID were a little bit odd. Like you had a bunch of markets that like actually shifted seasonality, which is usually very stable. And that's kind of like, you know, you'll talk to a lot of revenue managers who've been around a long time and they're like, yeah, you know, trend wise, it looked a lot like 2019. We're just have higher rates. Um, and if you have that data and that experience, then you kind of probably feel a little better. I think it's been really hard for people who got into the business the last couple of years and don't know how to, they don't have any revenue management strategies in their repertoire to deal with anything other than this unusual COVID situation where it's like, keep your rate high. Whoever's available in the last 10 days is going to get the highest rate. It's like, that's not normal. Um, most people only have a few dates like that. And even those dates this year, people kind of overpriced. Um, I think a really good thing for people to do, especially if they've had a really tough year, is go and look at your historicals and then look at your current rates. Because there's a lot of clients I talk to where it's like, you could cut your rate 20% and still be projecting 10% growth. But the customer is not going to pay 30% premium over what you did last year. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because um, you know, like I see, I see in some markets that this year is actually pretty similar to last year. Like, I don't see a 
big difference in some markets, but then in some markets I, I do see a difference. So I think it's very segmented. Um, but you know, I, I feel like it's a, it's definitely a lot better than what we were kind of expecting at the beginning of this year. Do you agree with that? Partially. It, it kind of depends on who you talk to. I think Q1, uh, people were really bullish on the year, especially if they had a summer high season. I think some of the people who had spring high seasons, they felt it early, right? It was like, if you had stuff in downtown Miami, you were like, oh man, this is not very strong. You know, um, I think once we hit around spring, that's when I started hearing from a lot of revenue managers that were pretty experienced that they were like, hey, things aren't bad, but I'm pacing behind, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the ones who ended up being most successful, who actually grew year over year still, a lot of them started becoming very conservative a quarter before the summer. They were like, March, end of March, April, they were like, I'm going to actually re-look at what rate position I have. I'm going to be much more conservative in terms of our growth, and I'm going to see if I can pack on the occupancy. And so when we look at the year as a whole, there's a lot of diversity. Because overall, like there's people who did pretty well, and they're kind of bolstering what happened actually in the summer season, where in many places, rates kind of collapsed, very short booking windows, a lot of people stressed. And so what you have is you have people who like booked earlier, and maybe at at the time, what were low rates ended up bolstering the whole market. You have some people who booked really early and their rates are not only like they were low at the time, but they end up being the highest rates in the market. Those people who booked like a year, nine months in advance. Then you have a whole bunch of people who had a bunch of vacancy. And so that's why you can talk to people and say they're like, yeah, you know, it wasn't too bad. You know, it's not great but we're, we're doing fine and then you have people who are like this is a disaster like i have nothing on my mm-hmm. calendar it's the airbnb bust you know <laughs> right yeah exactly yeah um i think next year hopefully people will have learned from like holding the rates too high that that strategy is really not going to work most of the time um and they're in a position to be more competitive i do think that um occupancy It'll be interesting to see if occupancy con- continues to erode. I think it'll really depend on people's behavior. If people continue to high rate, hold high rates, then I think market occupancies will erode, and then some people will do really well because they'll operate different than what everyone else is doing. Um, yeah. What do you see in terms of supply? Like, do, you, do you see still an increase in supply, or or does the is the the fact that you know things are have slowed down a little bit does that remove inventory from the market? Um, on the supply side, I think we'll see a lot slower growth, but I don't think it's really going to reduce very quickly. Um, I don't think people can afford to just get in and out after one year, even though they might incur a lot more losses and it might be the best thing they could do if they bought too high. Uh, and I don't think there's enough individual buyers to, to shift the market supply that much. There's too much institutional money that will hold Hmm. that. They'll hold those assets for a little while. So I, I think that. Uh, the supply problem will be around. It'll continue to grow, but just very slow. But I don't think there'll be a big correction for at least another year or two, maybe three. Yeah. Makes sense. Awesome, dude. Um, any any final thoughts before we uh, wrap it up? Um, in terms of minimum length of stay, um, I would just say, like, make sure you set those... Uh, those kind of release valves and like pull those minimum length of stays off. 
be a little bit more conservative this year and think of minimum length of stay like a rate premium. You, whenever you put a restriction on, it's very similar to adding like a 30% rate premium for every night, you know? <laughs> um, so if you already think you're priced pretty well, maybe don't add the restriction or yeah. experiment with it and know when you're going to pull it off. Yeah. And you made a good point too, where, you know, if you, if you have a res- very restrictive minimum length of stay setting, then like you're, you're not going to be seen by as many people, right? And even if people don't book your place, Like and they're still seeing your listing even if they don't book. Plus, I think Airbnb and other OTAs probably, probably they probably don't like it if we put too many restrictions, right? So it probably could hurt our our search rank position as well. Yeah, a small tip I like, which is you can do with these platforms, is in your low season, just leave your your stuff low all the time because the the OTAs really want to see that you're giving them the inventory like especially the hotel otas punish you for having blocked off inventory because they just assume you don't want to sell it there um so if it's if you're not going to displace revenue anyway you might as well leave it kind of open especially if you have volume right yeah a little different if you only have like one or two units you you probably do want to hold for a little bit higher than one night for longer sure yeah makes sense awesome john well i appreciate you uh jumping on here on our uh, second revenue management episode, we're going to do uh, probably like, I don't know, maybe four or five or six of these. Um, as we're really diving into this topic, uh, we feel that uh, revenue management is kind of like, there's there's not that much education and there's a lot of confusion. Did you, do you see that as well? Yes. Um, I think revenue managers right now are kind of like, kind of like mystics. They're like palm readers, you know? Like it's very intuitive and they're usually pretty good, but it's, it's hard to explain, <laughs> hard yeah. to learn. I know it's hard to, it's, it, it is, it is hard to explain. Um, and that's why, you know, sometimes cause I've been listening to a lot of people talking about revenue management and oftentimes there's, it's a, it's a little vague. It's I almost feel like, Oh, they don't really want to give me the real strategy, but then it's like, it's so, it's such a complicated topic as well. Right. Where there's never really like a one set rule that works, you know, for, for every property in every market. Right. So, um, it's a, it's a complicated topic. It's one of those things where like, so I'm an artist, I, I paint. Um, and I actually talked to a lot of revenue managers who are creatives. And I think the reason is, you know, we, we talked earlier about those factors and I was listing mm-hmm. off a lot of factors. The actual logic tree is really complex. So what you have to do is you have to look at the patterns long enough where it becomes intuitive, where you kind of like, it's kind of that same entrepreneurial sense when you talk to CNO, it's just like, I just feel like, like, you know, there should be more demand here. Let's go lower the rates. Like he's processing a lot of information to get to that conclusion. That would probably be really hard for him to explain. Revenue manages management is the same way you learn all these concepts and there's a lot it's never just like three it's like Mm -hmm. 10 data points you might consider but if you learn how they relate you can start to do it intuitively and that's kind of where you want to be as a revenue manager is to to kind of feel your concern and that's why i use that concept of like risk tolerance like know when you feel at risk so that you can um decide to go look into the specific data points that you know are relevant to a specific topic yeah well that's a great point um, you know, it's kind of like, it's more of a soft skill, right? Like versus a hard skill, like mathematics where it's like, yeah, free, free and free is six. Like you can't argue about it. Right. Whereas revenue management is like, well, 
you say the op- optimal price should be 180 and another person says 220 well we can't prove either way right so i think i think uh i think you're right with you you got to have experience right and that's why i think it's so important for everybody to get in the habit of dive into your pricing tool dive into the market data on a weekly basis i ask a lot of people in our legends x course and our mastermind and I ask them how often do you look at your pricing and it's typically like well it's on my schedule to do it every week or twice a week but i usually am too busy to do it so i usually actually only look at it once a month right and it's like if you get the habit of like start looking at your dashboard these you know, you know the pricing tools give so much information these days you know there's the market dashboards and like the, you know there's there's all this data that we can look at so even just like getting in the habit of looking at it and thinking about it like should i make some changes should i not make some changes and having some strategy behind what you're doing over time you're going to develop that intuition that you're talking about right yep yep 100% awesome john thank you so much man appreciate it and uh, you know just before i let you go let let people know where they can find the the education that you're doing with the with the podcast and the and the webinars again yeah so any educational content i've done um recently has been through wheelhouse so if you go to youtube and go to the wheelhouse youtube all of these great webinars are there the conversations with uh, big revenue managers that we do monthly um, my conversations with doug they're a little bit more kind of what's going on now based but some of the older stuff's really interesting from a conceptual level and then we do a bunch of other training materials as well both for the wheelhouse platform revenue management in general uh, I'll also be speaking at both VRM, VRMA and DARM this year. So feel free to come up and, and say hi to me if you're at either of those. Uh, we'll be doing a bunch of coursework, um, really specific to revenue management. Uh, if you ever watch my coursework, you'll notice, even though I work for Wheelhouse, I rarely talk about the platform unless I'm specifically training on it. Uh, so it should be applicable to anyone who's just learning about revenue management, whether you're using Wheelhouse or not. Awesome. Cool, man. I appreciate your... Uh... Your efforts in the industry to uh, educate us on this topic and uh, i'm sure we'll have you on uh, on the podcast another time so thanks so much and to the listeners i hope you enjoyed this podcast we'll be back on friday with another revenue management podcast we'll see you then thanks so much jasper get paid for your pet get paid for your pet get paid for your pet